Welcome to episode 27 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 25th, 26th and 27th of April 2023. Fire Safety Matters is once again serving as the lead media partner for the exhibition. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. Turning to the news now, and a government-backed professional indemnity insurance scheme for EWS1 assessors will be delivered by MGAM, itself an AccraSure partner, and SCORE in partnership with the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities. External wall fire review process forms, commonly known as EWS1 forms, were developed by the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, UK Finance, and also the Building Societies Association to support the valuation process for high-rise residential buildings with cladding. At present, there's a clear shortage of insurance companies willing to provide professional indemnity cover to firms undertaking assessments of external wall systems in mid-rise and also high-rise residential buildings. This is contributing to issues in certain segments of the property market, with buyers unable to obtain the necessary certification in order to secure a mortgage. In the early part of last year, the Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities announced a government-backed professional indemnity insurance scheme for competent fire safety professionals undertaking EWS1 assessments to help resolve these issues. Under the new arrangement announced on Tuesday the 28th of June this year, the scheme will be delivered by MGAM through an insurance provider by SCORE UK, with Her Majesty's Government providing reinsurance coverage to the latter party. The scheme, which is due to be officially launched in September, will last for five years. After that period comes to a conclusion, it's anticipated that insurers will step back into the market, which will then remove the requirement for a state-backed scheme. Jason Anthony, CEO of MGAM, has said, When the government approached the market for a potential solution to this issue, MGAM recognised the extensive protection gap in the market and immediately responded to, and later won, the tender to administer a professional indemnity scheme for EWS1 assessments. We've worked closely with the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities and indeed SCORE to create a solution that, over time, will enable the private market to provide appropriate professional indemnity cover for risk assessors. Roman Lornay, the CEO for Specialty Insurance at SCORE, has also commented, SCORE is delighted to be partnering with MGAM and the Department for Leveling Up Housing Communities in order to deliver insurance coverage that will ensure EWS1 assessments can be carried out properly and in a timely fashion, thereby enabling the purchase, sale or remortgage of homes in what is a challenging housing market. This initiative very much aligns with SCORE's raison d'etre, allowing us to reduce the protection gap for the ultimate benefit of society. Before announcing his resignation from the role on Friday the 8th of July, Lord Stephen Greenhalgh, the Minister of State for Building Safety and Fire, explained, we are taking more decisive action than ever before to tackle overcautious lending and to help identify fire risks. I'm delighted that MGAM and SCORE are joining us in these efforts. Lord Greenhalgh continued, our new indemnity scheme will give EWS1 assessors the confidence they need to exercise their professional judgments and take a more proportionate approach towards their assessments. This is on top of nearly £700,000 in funding that we've delivered to train more assessors, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing the real-world impact of this effort. Stuart Andrew, the former Minister for Housing, observed, In order to offer EWS1 professional indemnity insurance to competent assessors, my department must accept an unlimited contingent liability, with the Government Actuaries Department making a best estimate of expected losses at circa £100 million. The contingent liability being claimed is unlimited because there's no theoretical cap on the size of claims that could be made. However, the risk is limited by the number of buildings and also the number of EWS1 assessments. Andrew went on to comment, To further mitigate this risk, we will only be offering professional
professionally indemnity insurance cover for accredited professionals who have the requisite training, expertise and knowledge to undertake the EWS1 assessment. In addition, completed EWS1 assessments will be subject to an audit process to ensure they're being completed accurately and with due process being followed. The cost of the scheme, including the expected losses, will be offset in full through premiums. EWS1 assessors will be required to purchase professional indemnity insurance policies for any EWS1 assessments they complete, with the funds gathered being accumulated and subsequently used to pay out on any insurance claim successfully made against the assessors. In this way, the scheme will operate on a fiscally neutral basis for central government. Commenting on this news on LinkedIn, Anthony Walker, Director at Circle and a member of the RICS UK and Ireland World Regional Board, noted, The delay in reaching this position has, in my opinion, resulted in many surveyors not pursuing the RICS External Wall Systems Assessment Training Programme. Asking surveyors to commit well over 40 hours towards study for a qualification that was of little value without professional indemnity insurance was seen by many as not best use of fee-earning time. Walker went on to state, Since the RICS training programme launched in November 2020, I'm led to believe that the total number of individuals who've qualified is less than 100. Hopefully this latest news from government will afford practising surveyors greater levels of confidence when it comes to the value of them committing their time to the EWS1 course. It's important to remember that an EWS1 form is not a government or regulatory requirement, and nor is it a building or life safety assessment. For its part, the RICS has published guidance on the criteria that should be used to determine whether a building needs an EWS1 form or not. That guidance was last updated on the 28th of January this year. For the first time, many leaseholders will now be legally protected from unfair bills to make their homes safe from fire, with measures in the Building Safety Act 2022 coming into force on Tuesday the 28th of June. Those responsible for historical safety defects and those who own buildings will instead be required to fund essential repairs. Some developers are already stepping up to the mark and doing the right thing. In fact, 48 of the UK's biggest home builders have agreed to fix life-critical fire safety defects on all buildings of 11 metres tall and above, for which they played a development or refurbishment role in the last 30 years. Stronger measures in the Building Safety Act include new powers for the Secretary of State to restrict irresponsible developers' ability to build new homes, an extension of the building safety levy worth an estimated £3 billion, and an improvement centred on building owners' rights to launch legal action against developers. During his final days in post, Secretary of State Michael Gove wrote to freeholders and made clear that the days of leaseholders being faced with large invoices for building safety repairs are now over. The letter reminds freeholders that qualifying leaseholders now have protections in law from costs and that they will be acting illegally if they attempt to circumvent them. The letter also reminds them of their new responsibilities as part of the Building Safety Act, including the need to ensure that buildings have updated fire risk assessments in place that duly reflect the latest guidance on proportionality. Where freeholders or owners of buildings over 18 metres in height with cladding-related issues don't have clear plans to address them, they must have full assessments ready to submit to the Building Safety Fund. The latter is due to reopen for new applications very shortly, thereby helping to ensure those applications can be handled in good time and therefore reduce disruption and stress for leaseholders. They must inform and consult leaseholders throughout. If they don't address these issues, responsible authorities now have the legal power to compel them to remediate their buildings and to ensure that they meet the costs. Measures from the Building Safety Act have been prioritised to ensure leaseholders are protected. For the first time, qualifying leaseholders living in buildings above 11 metres tall, or with at least five storeys, will be legally protected from extortionate building safety costs. Qualifying leaseholders, i.e. those living in their own homes or with up to three UK properties in total, will be protected in full from the costs associated with the remediation of uns- 
safe cladding. They will also have robust and far-reaching protections from the costs associated with non-cladding defects, including interim measures such as waking watch. It will be illegal for freeholders to pass on the cost of historical building repair works or the removal of cladding to any of their leaseholders, including non-qualifying leaseholders, if they are linked to the building's developer. It will also be illegal for freeholders to pass on any historical building safety cost to qualifying leaseholders if they pass the wealth test set out in law. Where a developer cannot be held responsible and the building owner is not required to meet the costs in full, leaseholders with non-cladding focused issues will also be protected by a cap on how much they can pay for these costs. The cap will only apply to non-cladding work for those whose property is valued at more than £325,000, that's in London, and £175,000 outside London, with owners of properties below this ceiling not required to pay anything. Where leaseholders have bought through shared ownership, their cap will reflect their share of ownership in the property. Any costs that are not recoverable from leaseholders will need to be met by building owners and landlords alike. Buyers of new-built homes will be able to hold their developer responsible for safety and quality issues under a new scheme from the new homes ombudsman. The building safety levy is to be charged on all new residential buildings. This is expected to raise an estimated £3 billion over 10 years and will fund a new central government scheme to pay for the removal of unsafe cladding on buildings of 11 to 18 metres in height where the developer cannot be traced or has otherwise failed to agree to cover the costs up front. Enhanced civil liabilities for building owners will enable them to launch legal action against developers, contractors and manufacturers for shoddy construction works and defective products proven to have caused homes to be deemed uninhabitable in the past 30 years. There are going to be extra powers for the courts in England and Wales to go after associated companies. Businesses who've hidden behind shadowy shell companies within their corporate structures can now be pursued for payment. These new laws will allow the government to consider appropriate action to pursue these companies as part of a new recovery unit based within the Department for Leveling Up, Housing and Communities. Further, tough regulations for the industry will enforce a higher quality of building standards, in turn ensuring homes are made safer and also that a proportionate approach is taken towards safety. A new building safety regulator, overseen by the Health and Safety Executive, will enforce a new and more stringent regulatory regime on the safety and performance of high-rise buildings in scope in England. The Building Safety Regulator will also consult on and respond to safety concerns raised by residents through a new residence panel. Finally, a national regulator for construction products will implement stronger standards on construction manufacturers here in the UK. Part of the Office for Product Safety and Standards, this new regulator will conduct vital market surveillance to pinpoint and remove unsafe materials on a faster basis, as well as confront poor practice by taking action against those who break the rules. Our guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast appears on every episode. Warren Spencer is the Managing Director of Blackhurst Buds Listers. He specialises in criminal and civil litigations and in particular in relation to fire safety cases. Warren is an accredited higher courts advocate, enabling him to work as an advocate in the Crown Court. He boasts experience gained from working on over 200 cases under the current fire safety legislation, including prosecutions realised on behalf of numerous fire and rescue services. Previously, Warren has been shortlisted for the Private Practice Solicitor of the Year category that runs as part of the annual Law Society Excellence Awards. On this episode of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, Warren chats with Mark Sennett, the CEO of Western Business Media, who's currently on annual leave in America, about the recent digital conference run jointly by Fire Safety Matters and Blackhurst Buds Listers on the subject of fire risk assessors. The duo duly addressed some of the questions posed on the day. Morning, Warren. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Mark. Sat here in Kent, um, helping with Kent Fire and Rescue Service this week. Yep, you're down south. I'm currently overseas, so uh, the wonders of the internet, a truly international podcast today. So we recently worked together, didn't we, on a digital conference, and, um, you know, 
we had, we had over 100 people come. It was a pay-to-attend digital conference, and, and it covered a range of legal matters. Now, the, the truth is, Warren, when you go through a three-hour conference like that, we got through a lot of questions. But we had some really good ones that come in, and you and I thought, you know what, why don't we actually bring up those questions as part of the next podcast? So this has really been our first opportunity to do it, to be quite frank. So... Yeah, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions from the podcast, sorry, for the podcast from the webinar. But before I do so, why don't you just remind people what the conference covered and, and, and how it went? Well, we were looking at um, whether or not the fire risk assessor was being adequately protected and whether their voice was being heard and trying to suggest a way forward so that their interests were protected. And we had a lot of input to that. There seemed to be a lot of goodwill for an organisation which did look after the interests of fire risk assessors. Um, but, but at the same time, there was the question, do we need another institution or, or um, consortium or uh, whatever to, to take that forward? So, you know, it's a difficult one, but uh, I think what came out for it, and I think we had some surveys done during the course of the webinar that said there was I think something like 86% in favour of having an organisation for representing fire risk assessors. And I know that's something that you're personally looking at now um, and had conversations with people in the sector about and you know you never know we might have something a bit more to say about that in coming weeks or months but let's go to a couple of the key questions that came out that we thought we were raising for listeners of our podcast here to to hear what was said so first question came in was where you have a right to manage situation and a board of directors who are residents, could the board of directors be the accountable person or can an entity be the accountable person? So you'll probably put a bit more context to this war in that question and, and I'll let you answer it. So when, when someone mentions the accountable person, I, I'm assuming they're referring to the building safety bill because that's the phrase that's used in that, that bill. Um, Obviously, I'm used to dealing with the responsible person, um, and of course, the, the government have given guidelines as to, uh, the accountable person. I have a bit of an issue with it because the, the government suggests that the accountable person will usually be the same as the responsible person, um, and, and I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. The responsible person um, is very often in a workplace, uh, the employer, and uh, in, in buildings there can be a number of employers. So saying the accountable person is the same as the responsible person isn't actually correct in my view. Um, as to whether or not uh, the accountable person can be uh, board members or a board member um, or an entity, well, if you apply, yeah, apply the same principles that we apply to the responsible person, as I've just said, the responsible person is usually in a workplace is the employer and very often an employer is a corporate entity and a company and, and, and of course that, that means that they are a legal persona and therefore the company would have the right. Uh, as, if, if the building safety bill follows the fire safety order, directors could still be accountable um, as with 30, Article 32.8 of the fire safety order, but only if the company commits an offence with their consent, connivance or neglect. Um, so usually you wouldn't go after individual directors unless they had a, a very specific responsibility in respect, in respect of managing a building um, and they failed to do it. And it was very clear that what they should do and, and or what they, should, you know, that they admitted to do something that they should do or they did something they shouldn't do. Um, so the answer to the question is both could be, 
liable, um, but usually it would be the corporate entity with the contract to manage uh, if, if we were to follow the same sort of principles that we've got for the fire safety order. And the other question that we wanted to go over today was one that I know we could probably spend quite a bit of time on, um, but we definitely thought it was worth mentioning. And this question came in during that conference, and that was, do you feel there's been a missed opportunity to introduce fixed penalty notices, for example, for failure to undertake a fire risk assessment or review rather than just prosecutions? Now, I know you have a view on this, Warren. Um Listen, uh, fixed penalty notices have worked really well in other areas of the criminal justice system um, because the, the, one of the principles of justice is that it happens quickly and effectively. Um, and I'm, I'm given the, the pandemic and delays and, and all kinds of reasons why prosecutions take a lot of time, um, then I think it is a good idea. Whether it's a missed opportunity is another matter, but um, there'd have to be it's quite difficult with regulatory matters um, because you, given the example that the questioner has given us to, for failing to um, do a, a suitable and sufficient fire risk assessment, that's actually the basis of the fire safety order. That's why it was brought in. So I wouldn't necessarily think that a, a fixed penalty notice for not doing something that, that the whole order is based upon uh, would be appropriate. But things like signage and, and, and odd uh, de minimis type of breaches of the fire safety order then i think it is a good idea it's, it's a very quick and efficient way uh, of dealing with it and, and would suit probably the fire services and those who have responsibilities in respect of premises so as always warren we always wrap up um when we do your segment on the podcast by asking how can people get in touch with you if they want uh, any legal advice or you know just to drop you a line what's the best way to do it um well i Easily contactable on LinkedIn, and uh, I've got the Fire Safety Law website, and obviously I'm a solicitor at Blackhurst Bud uh, Solicitors. Um, I would like to hear from anybody who's got any ideas about um, taking forward what we talked about at the, uh, at the top of the uh, podcast, which is, you know, how should fire risk assessors be represented, and whether uh, there are any ideas as to competency levels and, uh, you know, how, how we should go forward with that because that, those are discussions that I'll be having in the next few months. Warren, great to see you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Thanks, Mark. Returning to the latest industry news now, and Disability Rights UK, Clad Dag, and also Grenfell United have launched a petition calling on the government to implement the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry Recommendation on Personal Emergency Evacuation Plans, or PEEPs. The Phase 1 report of the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry recommended that the owner and manager of every residential high-rise should be legally required to prepare PEEPs for all residents whose ability to self-evacuate may be compromised. Additionally, Dame Judith Hackett's report, entitled Building a Safer Future, recognised the need for provision for disabled and potentially vulnerable people. Here in the UK, over 14 million people have a disability. Cognitive and physical impairments are factors that can influence the ability to evacuate a property. In addition, a major fire in a high-rise building does not just put the occupants of a single household in danger, but potentially multiple occupants in several dwellings above and below the seat of the blaze as well. The new petition, launched during the week of the fifth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower tragedy, requires 10,000 signatures for the government to respond and 100,000 in order for it to be considered in Parliament. While evacuation 
evacuation plans are critical in the event of tenants needing to leave a given building, there are also new and intelligent ways in which to help mitigate fire risks for the estimated 43% of social housing residents living with a long-term disability before a 999 call needs to be made. Industry experts are now using the Internet of Things to transform fire safety for those most at risk in our communities. Data monitored in real time can be used to alert social landlords to the status of alarms in the property, including when they are triggered and when they need to be replaced. Being able to combine this information with data on individuals' physical or mental status is absolutely critical. If someone is suffering from dementia, is partially sighted or uses a wheelchair, their ability to respond quickly in the event of a fire may well be compromised. This data is crucial for providing a high level of care and protection for the most vulnerable. Nick Rutter, Fire Angels co-founder and Chief Products Officer, has commented, We're at a stage now where technology can shoulder some of the responsibility of fire safety. Housing providers, fire and rescue services and regulators alike can use it to protect tenants and homes more effectively, ensuring that everyone receives the help they need and when they need it. Rutter also stated, Looking to the future, we need a combination of the Internet of Things, robust fire detection and alert systems, and evacuation plans designed to ensure tenants feel safe in their homes and that a tragedy like Grenfell never happens again. In parallel, the Fire Brigades Union has revealed that 221 firefighter positions have been cut since the Grenfell Tower fire. The figure emerges after large cuts to the fire and rescue service in the run-up to Grenfell, with the UK, for example, losing over 11,000 firefighter roles between 2010 and 2017. That's nearly one in five and, according to the FBU, represents the government's failure to change course after years of deep cuts prior to the events that unfolded at Grenfell. Matt Rack, the FBU's General Secretary, has stated, Despite the worst UK domestic fire in living memory, the government is still failing to change direction and take fire safety and the fire and rescue service seriously. It's an insult to the people who lost their lives and an insult to the Grenfell community. The Association for Specialist Fire Protection has announced the election of its new governing council. The move follows in the wake of the organisation's annual general meeting, which was held at the Sadler's Hall in London on 30 the 7th of July. Council members for the ASFP are elected every year, while the chair and vice chair remain in place for a two-year term. The role of the ASFP Council is to advise and guide on the forward direction for the organisation with a keen focus on four key areas, establishing the ASFP's vision, mission and values, setting strategy and structure, delegating to management and the executive board as appropriate, and also exercising accountability to shareholders while being responsible to relevant stakeholders. Every ASFP member company can put forward a candidate for election to the ASFP Council, while every ASFP member has one vote in governing council elections. As stated, each elected ASFP Council member sits on the Council for a term of one year, after which time they automatically retire. At this point, they can then stand for re-election or step down. Any elected ASFP council member has the responsibility to represent the sector to which they are elected and should not be restricted by their own role or company position. The ASFP Governing Council now comprises Chris Miles of UL, who's serving as chair, Vice Chair Clive Miles of CLM Fireproofing, Clive Atkins from the Fire Protection Coatings Group, Kerry Blackshaw of Minster, Sharon McClure of Avesta Scotland, Nigel Morrie from ATEX Building Performance, Robert O'Byrne of Tenants Building Products, Jamie O'Hagan from Structural Fireproofing Systems, Ian Outram of CPG Europe, Philip Sargent from IFC Certification and also Bob Westcombe of Rockwall. ASFP CEO Steve Davis has stated, We are pleased to announce the appointment of our new ASFP Council. While we thank our returning council members for their continuing support, we particularly welcome those who are newly elected. Davis went on to comment, The ASFP Council plays a key role in guiding strategy for the organisation.
Association and we welcome the important input we receive from members who give up their valuable time. As the Association grows and we bring in new services, this engagement is crucial to ensure that we continue to meet the changing needs of members from every category. The ASFP is governed via a simple structure involving an executive board and the council, with day-to-day management and operation the responsibility of the CEO and chief officers. The executive board is composed of the ASFP chair and vice chair, the CEO and also the business manager. In parallel with the ASFP's news, FireQual, the specialist awarding body for the fire protection industry that's continually working for the betterment of knowledge and skills, has announced details of the latest appointment to its senior management team. Steve Scarrett joins the organisation from his former role as Head of Prevention and Protection Training at the Fire Service College to take up the post of Qualifications Manager. Offering nationally regulated qualifications for multiple areas of fire safety, FireQual is heavily invested in adding to its existing suite of qualifications. The addition of Scarrett to the team will aid in accelerating this expansion and also continue the excellent progress made since FireQual was first established back in September 2020. Throughout his career to date, Scarrett has been heavily involved in training, including acting as Interim Head of Learning and Development at the Fire Service College. Prior to that, he served as Curriculum and Qualifications Manager for the Fire Protection Association. Commenting on Scarrett's appointment, Nick Preston, Director of Qualifications at FireQual, said, We're thrilled to add Steve to the FireQual team. His tenured career up to this point will be invaluable in helping us to drive forward FireQual and indeed the future of fire and life safety focused qualifications across the board. Preston continued, It's essential that, where possible, the industry has robust yet accessible qualifications available for those areas which do not have a current provision, or where working practices require new and forward-thinking qualifications designed to meet industry needs. Adding Steve and his vast experience, notably so that pertaining to training, further strengthens the support FireQual can provide to the fire industry, not to mention the wider life safety sector itself. In response, Steve Scarrett observed, I'm excited to join FireQual at this very interesting stage of its growth. I trust my experience within the fire sector will benefit the organisation in helping to nurture qualifications that will maintain and raise practitioner skills at what is undoubtedly an important juncture for the industry. I'm very much looking forward to the challenges and opportunities ahead. FirePro UK, the fire suppression system specialist, has confirmed its participation in the Fire Safety Matters Digital Conference 2022, which runs on Wednesday the 12th and Thursday the 13th of October. Between 1pm and 1.45pm on Wednesday the 12th of October, Tony Hanley, the Managing Director of FirePro UK, will be delivering a presentation entitled Fire Suppression Systems for Non-Occupied Spaces in Residential Premises. Legislation for residential fire safety projects focuses on requirements around material types, compartmentation and the levels of fire detection and escape lighting systems etc. However, non-occupied spaces such as roof voids containing solar or plant equipment, lift motor rooms, electrical intakes, distribution and riser spaces as well as bin stores etc. are all too often afforded only the bare minimum of consideration. In a commercial environment, the opposite applies, driven by the risk assessment or insurer's requirements that consider such areas to be mission critical and therefore meriting investment in a fire suppression system. A fire is still a fire, so why the difference? asked Tony Hanley. Should housing developers and providers adopt a more risk-based and pragmatic approach towards the protection of non-occupied spaces in residential premises and in particular when it comes to high-rise or complex buildings? Or should they simply live with the risk of environmental and reputational damage, wasted time and effort, not to mention resources, rehousing and all of the costs associated with salvage and disruption following a fire event? This introduction to the subject is intended to show how a satisfactory solution might be achieved using fire suppression technology without water, pipes, pressurised gas or cylinders. Delegates can register to attend the Fire Safety Matters Digital Conference for free and will be able to 
network with each other and sponsors on the day via live chat or requesting a video call. They'll also be able to direct message sponsors when accessing the on-demand service. The live two-day online event, for which the headline sponsor in 2022 is ACO, covers a range of topics, among them fire detection, evacuation, asset registers, training for installers, and also third-party certification. Other participating companies and organisations include TO Fire Safety, Safety Chair International, the National Association of Healthcare Fire Safety Officers, CTEC, UPTIC, FFE, the Fire Industry Association, and also BAFE. All attendees will have access to the conference programme, which runs from 10am until 4pm on both days, and receive continuing professional development points for their attendance thanks to our special arrangement with the Institute of Fire Safety Managers. Delegates will also be able to engage with the sponsors area, where they can view written and video content uploaded by this year's supporting organisations. Access the event website at www.fsmdigitalconference.com for further information and to register your attendance. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Warren Spencer, the Managing Director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, for once again delivering an excellent insight on legal issues pertaining to the fire sector. You can read more on the issues raised in this edition of the podcast and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website. The web address you need to access is www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content delivered in the podcast and found it informative. Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at FSMatters underscore MAG and also access our LinkedIn page at Fire Safety Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.